Let's talk briefly about biosimilars first. I just have a few slides to give you an update because this has been covered in detail previously and will also be covered briefly later during the case discussions. Um, there are over 650 biosimilars that are currently in development, not just in IBD, of course, but across all biological therapies around the world. Um, nearly 50% of them are still in the preclinical pre trial stage, uh, and it's taken a long time and obviously a lot of money to get them to market. So why are biosimilars being developed, and why are regulatory agencies providing an abbreviated uh, approval pathway for them? Uh, as everyone in the room very well knows, it's because there's money to be made there, uh, and it's not anything that's necessarily novel in terms of treatment mechanisms. In IBD, we have a number of biosimilars against the um, TNF target, and they have been approved using an abbreviated approval pathway from the FDA that uses what's called the totality of the evidence. It means that the FDA has essentially a checklist of things that have to be shown about the way the biosimilar is created and how it demonstrates similarity in terms of its um, general pharmacokinetic properties, and then it gets studied in a single indication, or maybe two, and if they demonstrate equivalence to the originator or reference agent, equivalence, that means not better, not worse, then um, they gain extrapolation to all indications. So our anti-TNF agents have pr predominantly been studied in plaque psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis, and when they demonstrate equivalence, they've gained extrapolation to the IBD indications of Crohn's and UC. The data across Asia and Europe support single switches, meaning from one agent, usually the originator, to the, rep to the biosimilar as safe and effective, and there have been randomized and prospective analyses of these and longer-term follow-up that have been presented at DDW. Um, importantly and unique to the United States is that the FDA has a separate designation for biosimilars that's called interchangeable. In order to receive an interchangeable designation, a biosimilar has to demonstrate that there's no loss in effectiveness or safety um, in multiple switches, at least three switches. Uh, and when it's interchangeable, that means that a pharmacist uh, can substitute the agent without notification, and they consider them to be exactly the same, and there's nothing that you need to know about, and presumably nothing the patient needs to know about. No biosimilar in the U.S. for any disease or condition or biological therapy has received an interchangeable designation. Here's the status of the U.S. biosimilars in IBD. There are three biosimilars for the originator infliximab called Remicade and two for the originator uh, adalimumab called Humira. And the biosimilars for infliximab are currently available. Um, I certainly know of Inflectra and Renflexis being actively substituted and used throughout the country. Um, I haven't heard of Ixify, that third one there. The biosimilars for uh, adalimumab have not been made available yet due to some legal and uh, other arrangements that were made. So those are not going to be um, something you'll be hearing about for a number of years still. So that was the update on biosimilars. I'm sure there may be some questions, and I uh, promise you later we'll talk about them as well in the cases. So Steve showed something similar to this. I just wanted to point out to you how complex and remind you a little bit about where the targets are for thinking about management of IBD. And I've already talked to a gentleman here during the break who had some other thoughts about mechanisms of IBD and other treatment targets. So this is obviously quite complex. The diagram you're seeing here at the very top of the screen is meant to represent the lumen of the gut, where, of course, the microbiome and other pathogens and proteins exist. 
Then there's the epithelial cell lining of that um, border, followed by um, dendritic cells, which sample the environment. And then, of course, our lymphocytes, which have a variety of different factors, both intracellularly and extracellularly, including all the inflammatory proteins, which we call cytokines and interleukins that circulate, um, a variety of other cell types like macrophages. And then the blobby thing on the right there is meant to represent a lymph node. And so there's also the concept of can you um, use lymph node mechanisms to trap lymphocytes and therefore impair um, immune activation. At the very bottom of this diagram is a blood vessel. And there are other mechanisms that are thought to um, provide benefit in terms of preventing leukocyte trafficking from inside endo, uh, the blood vessels and prevent tra trafficking through the endothelium into the extracellular space and then to the epithelium, and a variety of other mechanisms along that line. So you can just think about the different spaces we're talking about in terms of what mechanisms may be at play here. I'm going to cover briefly some of these different treatment strategies. This table is a nice one um, just to get a general overview of all the different mechanisms currently being studied, and this doesn't include novel um, and new ideas that others have been exploring as well. So let's start with the anti-integrin therapies. Recall that the general principle of blocking integrins is preventing um, migration of lymphocytes out of blood vessels into the extracellular space or um, either uh, blocking them from getting into the epithelium or causing damage in other ways. Of course, the anti-integrin therapies currently available and approved in the U.S. include, tofa, excuse me, include natalizumab, which is um, something that most in the room don't use and didn't use, which is available for Crohn's and multiple sclerosis, and Steve referenced it, and vetolizumab, which of course is available for both Crohn's and UC. Well, there's a couple others that I'm going to mention briefly. The first is etrolizumab. Steve actually mentioned this. This is a bit more selective than even vetolizumab in that it's an uh, anti uh, alpha-E beta-7 antibody, and you can see in this phase two trial for moderately to severely active UC, both clinical remission, there was a, a very nice response in patients who received the etrolizumab and zero response to those who received placebo, and in fact, the 100 milligram dose was better than 300, but the other message that I want to drive home just in principle is that the patients who were anti-TNF naive did substantially better than those who were TNF exposed, a recurring theme with all of our current therapies and new therapies. In other words, by the time patients are um, not responding to anti-TNF, they're less likely to respond to other things. We don't know if that's actually a mechanism as much as it's just we're identifying more refractory patients who get into trials or who go on to other therapies. So remember the post, the pretest question, the answer was the anti-TNF patients who got ETRO had a 44% um, clinical remission rate. And here's mucosal healing. The other takeaway message is of, in all of our clinical trials now, we look at um, more objective measures of response, both for inclusion of the patients in the studies as well as what's happening in the outcomes. And you're looking at mucosal healing rates that despite what we saw was the 100 milligrams being better for clinical remission, when you looked at the mucosa, the 300 milligram dose looked like it was probably similar in the TNF naive groups or maybe even numerically better there. Now, the interesting thing, and although this hasn't been validated and there's been some question about whether it'll hold up, was that in this phase two trial, they also looked at the expression of alpha-E um, circulating lymphocytes. So could you use something in the circulation to predict response to the therapy? 
This, of course, is the holy grail for what we want for our medical therapies in IBD, is a better way to choose treatments based on some predictor of likelihood of response to them. And maybe that same marker can tell us um, whether the patient's losing response over time. So in this exploratory analysis, um, you can see the numbers are quite small, but the suggestion was those who had more alpha-E expression lymphocytes circulating in their blood were more likely to respond to etralizumab in the trial design. So that's exactly what we need our clinical trials to include, our markers that are predictive and paired with the therapies, so we're not just going to be going down the same pathways and trying everything before we move on to another treatment option. In the same class as the anti-MADCAM antibody, um, which has been studied in moderate to severe UC, this phase two trial was called Turandot, uh, and the primary endpoint here was clinical remission at week 12. And higher remission rates were also seen in anti-TNF-naive patients. The takeaway message for all of our clinician colleagues is really that um, choosing your first therapy is key, and thinking carefully about which one that might be is likely to give you better results. You can also see the dose ranging seen in this Phase two trial, where the highest dose actually didn't do quite as well. It's another theme that we see. And the other takeaway message just in general is that many of these trials now are using calprotectin and CRP as another way to document the patient's responding, but you can imagine that that'll translate very nicely into clinical practice where we can say a decrease in CalPro by 50% predicts the response to this therapy, and then you know what to do, and it gives you some guideposts rather than just leaving patients on therapy until they end up sick. Now let's switch gears to anti-IL-23. Of course, we have ustekinumab already available in the U.S. market for Crohn's disease. I'll remind you that it actually is an antibody against P40, which is a protein that's shared by two cytokines, IL-12 and IL-23. We think, however, that blockade of IL-23 is the predominant mechanism of ustekinumab in Crohn's. But let's talk about a few of the other agents that are coming. These also block IL-23, but they block it by um, targeting a protein called P19, which is restricted to the IL-23, so a little bit more selective. So brazikinumab um, has been studied as an induction therapy for moderate to severe Crohn's, not that different than thinking of the way ustekinumab was studied. And you can see the week 12 and week 24 results of the agent, which is here called Medi2070, both in clinical response, clinical remission, and another takeaway message in the way clinical trials are designed is the composite endpoint of clinical response and fecal calpro or CRP improvement, which you could translate into presumably mucosal healing or improvement improvement of mucosa. So you can see here that the agent's clearly superior to placebo in its phase two trial. And likewise, although this also hasn't held up yet, um, but is of great interest, is that those patients in this trial who had high circulating IL-22 levels, which is highlighted here in the red, were the ones who are more likely to respond to brasicumab. Um, so you could imagine another biomarker that might give us a clue, although this needs to be fleshed out a bit more, and I'm not sure it's going to hold up um, yet. It's very interesting to know how we might use some of these circulating cytokines. Now, for those in the room who are thinking, well, of course that makes sense, I'll just point out to you that we're missing a few parts of the equation. We don't know the expression and the tissue 
for example, and we don't know what's going on there when we look at something like a serum circulating level. And we also need to understand a bit more what happens to it once you start binding it. And is it, are we actually measuring the right thing? So this is more complex, which is why it hasn't become um, something we can use in practice. And then just showing you the CalPRO and CRP levels that went down statistically significantly compared to placebo here. So those are more objective measures. They also give us a nice idea of how to design the phase three trials so you'll know how to power them so you won't make a mistake in the design. Now, looking at this um, second agent, Rizinkizumab, for moderate to severe Crohn's disease, you can see here, likewise, um, both clinical remission on the top and clinical response on the bottom, um, a dose response across the agent here and all superior to placebo, especially when you look um, at the uh, right time point. And that's also a key to designing these clinical trials is not looking too soon and not waiting too long when you end up with problems. So clearly some benefit there with that agent. And most recently, and um, a few of us were together recently talking about this agent at an advisory board, is Mirakizumab, another P19 inhibitor being studied both in moderate to severe UC and in Crohn's. Both are phase two trials. And I do have a little bit of the results. This um, is the uh, phase two trial in moderate to severe UC. And once again, you can see, and we had a, a long discussion about this as a group, that the uh, 200 milligram dose of mirakizumab was more effective than the 600 milligram dose. And so there's clearly some pharmacokinetic and potentially trial design issues that we need to understand better. Nonetheless, clearly IL-23 is a target um, that works in Crohn's and um, probably also works well in UC, as you see here. And what will be presented later this year will be the results of UNIFI, which is the Eustachinumab Phase three trial looking at uh, Eustachinumab for ulcerative colitis. And um, we expect that this is likely to be positive. I haven't seen the results, so I'm not revealing something I shouldn't be talking about. But it makes sense to us, and of course, um, we're, we're confident that the therapy um, will provide the ongoing benefit that many patients need. Now let's move, shift gears. Steve already made mention of this, but let me explain to you a little bit more about sphingosine 1-phosphate modulators. The general principle here is that it inhibits the ability of lymphocytes to leave lymph nodes. And specific to this particular one, um, which is the S1P1 uh, ozonamod, uh, it actually prevents lymphocytes from responding to the signals that are trying to pull them out of lymph nodes, and they stay in the lymph nodes. So it's essentially another way to block lymphocyte migration into inflamed tissue. Um, the interesting thing, however, with this therapy um, is that protective immunity is generally preserved because the memory T cells do not circulate through lymph nodes. So uh, at least in theory and in some data now, this would be a safe therapy because you'd still have protection against environmental antigens or infections. There are some data for this in phase two in ulcerative colitis. You can see the induction data at week eight at the top and the maintenance follow-up in week 32 at the bottom. Um, in general here, uh, the 0.5 and one milligram doses were similar, but then presented uh, at DDW this year was looking at histologic remission. So here's another endpoint of interest that's being added to clinical trials in this study called Touchstone. And you can see that when you looked at the patients who had um, mucosal healing, 
the one milligram dose seemed to do better, and it correlated nicely with both histologic remission, the clinical remission, cessation of rectal bleeding, and absence of diarrhea, which all makes sense, and that's what we'd like to see. But these are the types of endpoints, and specifically looking at histology is going to be necessary before the FDA, and frankly, all of us as clinicians, will be able to adopt histology as a true endpoint, as we've discussed as a group. Now we'll briefly talk about Mondrosen, um, a SMAD7 antisense. This is essentially inhibiting this particular pathway of inflammation. And the anti-SMAD7 study, many of you remember from the New England Journal of Medicine, was thought to be too good to be true. In 15 days on this therapy, um, the patients developed substantial response um, and clinical response, essentially. Uh, and so many raised the eyebrow that, well, what about the objective measures of response? Is it actually doing what it needs to do? And sure enough, when it was in its phase three trial, it was stopped before it was finished because the interim analysis and the data safety monitoring board got together and decided this should not proceed. So Mondrosen um, is not proceeding in the Crohn's pathway. So that phase two trial in the New England Journal of Medicine was, in fact, too good to be true. Um, we'll see if this proceeds down the pathway in ulcerative colitis still. Another one to think about, another oral small molecule, is apremolast. This is an in inhibitor of phosphodiesterase 4. Now, this is completely different. Um, some of you already know of apremolast as an oral therapy that's quite effective for both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. It's been on the U.S. market since 2014. And in fact, in the phase 2 trials of moderate to severe UC, this looks like quite a promising therapy. Uh, and, of course, it's another oral option, not a non-biological option, as well as some very um, reassuring safety results. So this is interesting because it offers some different potential mechanisms to think about how we can control the disease. I'm sure that people are happy about the oral. In the psoriasis world, um, this therapy has been a very popular therapy in part because of that um, and has been well tolerated. So we're going to see this move forward, and we're um, interested to see what happens with this therapy. And the last one I'll cover briefly is this topical toll-like receptor 9 agonist, which is um, delivered as an enema in patients with distal active UC. Uh, and it's a synthetic immunomodulator, but because of its topical delivery, it's thought to be safer and doesn't induce systemic immune suppression. And this um, has quite striking results at, at week 4 and week 8 compared to um, standard of care and placebo. Uh, and so this will be an interesting therapy as it moves forward as a topical option that's different than our 5-ASA or steroid foams and enemas. So I've given you just some, some keys here. It's not that you're going to run out and start using all these quite yet, although a couple of them are on the market, but rather to, to help you think about what we're looking for as endpoints in clinical trials that really mirror what you've already heard about how we should be thinking about clinical practice. And then I'll go back to Steve's uh, slide of the staircase here, and the, the real question becomes now, where do you position all these therapies? We desperately are going to need better ways to know which therapies to use. We desperately need payers to adjust the way they think about therapies um, and to allow us to put patients on treatment, and it's completely reasonable to imagine um, that we'd have to prove the therapies achieving the goal we want after four months or so before we can keep them on that therapy. But really what we need are better biomarkers to predict response to treatments. My, my um, vision is that we'll have a panel of immune pathways and immune markers that you might use at a baseline, probably tissue and serum, 
uh, and that panel will give you a suggestion of which therapies are likely to do best, but it's not a static measure. It'll be something that would be repeated at some interval to see how the pathways may have changed. Um, and certainly we're open-minded to many other novel approaches that we haven't yet figured out. So in the meantime, keep doing what you're doing, and as Russ said, prove that it's working. With that, I'll end, and um, we'll invite our two speakers back up for a panel discussion. Thank you.